Welcome to Poetry Says Everyone. I'm here today with Robbie Coburn, who some of you might know from the Australian Poetry Podcast. How are you doing, Robbie? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. It's really good to get a chance to get you at the other end of the interview. Yeah, I'm very excited. Oh, that's great. So, Robbie, you're a Victorian-based poet. You grew up in rural Victoria and now you live in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And you've got a new book coming out soon called The Other Flesh. But the poet that you've brought along for us to talk about today is none other than Philip Larkin. I'm very excited to talk about this poem. But before we get to the poem, can we hear a little bit about how you first started writing and reading poetry? Uh, the first encounter I ever had with poetry uh, was my mother was a primary school teacher and they used to uh, ban books from the library that they considered too dark or inappropriate and a book of Edgar Allan Poe's poetry was was brought home and it was The Raven and Other Poems, it was a really slim volume and when I read The Raven something just completely changed in me uh, it was like a completely world shattering experience and that was the first time I was exposed to anything like poetry and from from Edgar Allan Poe, that's when I decided that I wanted to be a poet. Wow, they banned Edgar Allan Poe from your primary school library. Well, yeah, uh, to give you a bit of context about the book, the blurb uh, was, the heading of the blurb was simply love, full stop, death. And you know Edgar Allan Poe, and obviously it's there's not much light in Edgar Allan Poe's work. So probably not entirely appropriate for primary school children. Yeah, yet when it was brought home to you, was it the fact that it was a banned book that appealed to you or was it the subject matter? Or I think it was just the fact that I'd never read poetry beyond, you know, nursery rhymes or whatever you get read to you when you're a child. And I remember reading The Raven and it was just, the most incredible thing I'd ever heard and or heard and read. I was because I read it aloud because the introduction instructed to do so to fully appreciate it, the rhyme and the meter. But um, yeah, it was just just a, a something that I'd never experienced before. That something clicked inside me, as corny as that sounds. No, no, it doesn't sound corny at all. But so you would have been really quite young at this stage. I think I was 14. 14, okay. And from Poe, where did you go next? Do you remember who else you started reading after that? Well, I went through, for a while, I really wanted just to be a Allan Poe. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Poe led me, obviously there were things in between, but it, he led me to Ginsberg, and I, I think Ginsberg would be the greatest influence on me uh, more than anyone. But I was just obsessed with poetry. I would just go to bookshops. You know, this is back when there were bookshops. Yep. Um, and I would just look, go to the poetry section and get everything I could. And from there I found out there were Australian poets who were alive and publishing and that it was possible to be an Australian poet. And I've never wanted to do anything else since. Oh, that's so cool. You sort of had an addiction then from the start. No, oh, I still do. Whether it's good, whether it's good or bad, I just I can't help it. Yeah, it's there. And uh, do you remember 
some of your first tries at, at writing your own poems? Yeah, absolutely, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I was, as I said, yeah, just just awful, awful copies of Edgar Allan Poe. Well, it'd be weird if you just started writing perfect poetry from age 15. That would be quite bizarre. Oh, I don't think I write perfect poetry now, but they were they were rhyming. From what I remember, they were always rhyming and it was always this tragic life is awful kind of take on things that, that Poe captures so beautifully. Yeah, I think I think probably a lot of us can identify with that and we can probably all dig out a few pretty shocking copies of poems that we wrote in high school. Oh, absolutely. I, I should burn them. I should find them. <laughs> them. No, I don't know. You've got to keep them for posterity. Um, and who was it in the Australian poetry scene that first kind of took your attention? Uh, the first time I was ever published was when I was 17, and that was by Pio. Uh, he had a magazine called Unusual Work and I was in readings and, and as I said, I was always just going to, to bookshops and buying whatever poetry I could find and I found this, this strange, incredible magazine and I bought a few issues of it and I'd had it for, oh, I had it for a couple of months and then one day I was looking at it again and I, I was so enthralled by it I hadn't noticed that at the front there was a uh, a guideline from the editor um, for where you could post a poem, post a poem to him. And I'd written something and I sent it to him. And a few days later I heard back and he told me I was going to be in the, the next issue. That's um, amazing. Yeah, it was really, it was really surreal. And that was, so I think I, I have a, I have so much to thank Pio for and he's an incredible poet. And yeah, it was a very, it's just incredible how things have happened, really. I'm so glad you mentioned Pio. I remember um, when I finally got to Melbourne, yep. seeing him read at a, a launch for the... There's nothing like it, is there? Yeah, no, it was just world-shattering. I was like, this is it. This is what we're all meant to be doing. And I have no idea how I'm going to make that happen, but this is what I got to aim for. And I remember going up to him afterwards and saying, that was so beautiful. And then just running away because I was terrified. But um, yeah, totally changed my world as well. So thanks, uh, he's Oh, He's definitely a visionary. Yeah. I mean, there's, no, there's no two ways about it. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. And so from there, um, what has happened from that point onwards, if you can sum it up? Well, I did the gig for the launch and... Uh, the editors of Going Down Swinging were there and they asked me, or Pio asked me, because he, he was told by the editor to ask me if I would record for their upcoming issue. Um, so I did, and then I suppose it just it gave me this sense of where I was meant to be, that I, I could be a poet. And slowly but surely I've, I've just basically just been trying to be the best poet I can and been published a few times along the way. Published a few times, including in the latest edition of Poetry Magazine? Oh, I was in May. There's been a few... Ah, there's been a few since then, okay. 
but yes, that was that's that's still surreal. I can't really get my head around that. Yeah, yeah. What was that like when you when you got the news that you were going to be in Poetry Magazine? I, I don't really have words for it because it's one of those things when I was, um, you know, a teenager and I was obsessed with poetry and I was looking up poetry and you know if you type in poetry publications or whatever you're going to find poetry the poetry foundation and poetry magazine pretty quickly and I never would have thought that I'd be in there um you know before I was even 22 so it was just incredible it's amazing um and so what are you focusing on now you've got the book the other flesh coming out in the near Mm -hmm. future um, so the focus is always poetry, um, but I'm I'm writing a novel at the moment and a collection of short stories, but and a play. I've finished a play. That's that's sort of in in progress as far as what comes next. But it's always poetry. Right. So just a few things on the boil. Yeah, always. <laughs> and are you studying as well, or just working away? No, I'm just I'm just uh, working full time trying to you know make enough for rent and then i spend whatever i make on books yeah yeah that's completely understandable and so the poet that you brought for us to talk about today is none other than philip larkin yes so tell us a little bit about what philip larkin means to you well aside from saying everything it's funny i should have probably said this before when you asked the question about where did ginsburg lead me um, when I was in high school, there was this poet, there was a poetry section in my library and it wasn't big, but they would obviously get orders in of, uh, you know, the, the big poets that, that were, they were releasing, um, you know, classic editions of their books. And one of those was Philip Larkin's collected poems. Um, and that's the same way I found Ginsburg. And when I read Larkin, there was just other than maybe Rambo or or Plath, there's no poet who has just made me feel like there is so much more point to poetry than anything else. Yep, I know exactly what you mean. It's definitely those poets for me as well. It's, it's, it's one of those things that you can't really describe perfectly because it's just an endless infatuation. It's... But... Obviously, there's the obvious ones, like, you know, this be the verse. And it's, you know, like, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. Um, but it's it just, there's so many possibilities, and it says so much. Yeah, exactly. And I have to admit, my, my um, familiarity with Larkin is, is pretty limited. But the poem that you've brought to talk about today, High Windows, Yes. I read this and I had that, that same feeling that you're describing, you know, this is it, this is kind of everything encapsulated. Exactly, yeah. 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 Well, it's basically it's basically just analysing human life completely, very shortly and succinctly, isn't it? Yep. Five stanzas, four lines each, done. Yeah. And, exa- and, and I would have read this when I was maybe 16 and I still love it. I love it more now, I think. Yeah, it's probably one of those ones that unfolds a lot over time as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, why don't you read it for us and then we'll get into the discussion. 
high windows. When I see a couple of kids and guess he's fucking her and she's taking pills or wearing a diaphragm, I know this is paradise. Everyone elders dreamed of all their lives. Bonds and gestures pushed to one side like an outdated combine harvester. And everyone young going down the long slide to happiness endlessly. I wonder if anyone looked at me 40 years back and thought, that'll be the life. No God anymore or sweating in the dark about hell and that. Or having to hide what you think of the priest. He and his lot will go down the long slide like free bloody birds. And immediately, rather than words, comes a thought of high windows. The sun comprehending glass. And beyond it, the deep blue air that shows nothing and is nowhere and is endless. It's a little bit hard to respond to that. Just have to sort of let it sit there for a few seconds. But the first question that comes to mind for me about this poem is um, when you read it, you were, mm. you were reading kind of all in, all in one go, but it's actually broken up into these five stanzas and every stanza break kind of comes in the middle of a phrase. Yes. I was wondering if you could shed any light on why you think Larkin has done that. I think it's... What it always seemed to me was it was the continuation of being and the continuation of observation. So it would begin at the end of another thought and it would immediately lead into another one. Yeah, and maybe it's also that kind of continuation of generations as well, which seems to be, yeah, it seems to be one of the themes of the poem here. But the thing that I find really interesting about this poem is that it's it doesn't feel definite to me. I don't. I don't know about you, but it's, no, of course not. No. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of as if he's saying there's a way to see future generations and feel jealous and think, oh, they've got it so good. But then there's there's this really strong sense of doubt in here as well. Yeah, I, I think because obviously you can't really find a much more miserable man than Larkin, at least as far as the person that he gives us through his poetry. And I definitely agree. I think it's it, it passes through the generation, this this misery, this uh, this uncertainty and realisation of mortality. And I think that's that's basically what it is. Because he, he wrote High Windows when he was living in a in this apartment building. Um, and that's what the, obviously the high windows are. So it's like he's he's looking and observing life and and it will be identical for the people that he's watching in years to come. Yeah, right. Oh, that's really interesting. And and there's another um word in here that, that repeats a couple of times that really has me fascinated, and that's the word endless or endlessly. Mm. I guess that's Again, this kind of echoing of, of time continuing on and repeating. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's this that, that sense of immortality you have when when you're young and you're you're vibrant and healthy. Um, and you know you know, go down the long slide to happiness endlessly. 
as if that's all there's ever going to be because you're so immersed in the moment. And then he reflects on, um, you know, the sun comprehending glass, the deep blue air that shows nothing and is nowhere and is endless. And the endlessness is just existence and humanity. And humanity is just never-ending. And we are each contained within that to our own experiences where we feel our our sense of immortality at some point in our lives that passes. Yeah, yeah, that it's, it's such an interesting phrase, the long slide, because yeah. it suggests maybe things are getting worse rather than better, but he does say the long slide, like free bloody birds, the long slide to happiness. But I think bloody birds is the phrase. It's that angry old man looking on. Yeah. And... And what about, um, just as a, a minor question, what about the sense of God in this poem? So God's kind of there until about halfway through and then it says no yeah. God anymore. Um, and towards the end he's saying the deep blue air that shows nothing and is nowhere. So God kind of disappears. Yeah, I think because he's, he's a, this, this very serious Englishman who's lived in this society that's, you know, primarily very formal and dictated by the religious views of the time that were commonly held. And it's that that realisation that the younger generations maybe do have it better because they see more possibility outside of that, that kind of regimental uh, code of living. Yeah. So I think, but I think it is, it is a very, very nihilistic poem. Well, it is. It's completely a nihilistic poem. It's just it's just complete pointlessness to it. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I I guess it is nihilistic, but it doesn't leave me feeling flat at all. This. Um. I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting hopefulness onto it that's not there. I don't. I don't. Well, I don't think. I think. I think it's the beauty of it is that there's so many things you could think from it. Like there's so many. You could either take it that way, or you could take it as nothing and nowhere is, you know, and, and endless could mean some really positive thing. But I've read enough Larkin to to feel that I don't think that that's what he would have been thinking himself. Yeah, right. Yeah, and there's something about that decision to not end a poem with a pretty little bow that is no. quite brave and, and potentially a lot more useful to people. Yes, absolutely, yeah, and and he, I just feel like he just tackled exactly what he was feeling and probably what a lot of people were feeling, because at that point he was a very important poet, and and he knew that, and it's beautiful that this is kind of his lasting statement, it's the title of the last collection he released, and to my mind it's the, it's, it's one of his finest poems. Mm. Well, I'm really glad that you brought it along. Is there anything else you wanted to say about it? I just fucking love Larkin. <laughs> Too good. Well, let's hear perhaps one of your own poems, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely, sure. And, uh, yeah, I'm wondering how much Larkin we can see in this or maybe maybe some shades of Poe. Oh, I don't think there's Larkin or Poe necessarily, but I suppose the the view of life probably comes through. Mm. 
Uh, this poem's called The Savagery of Thought. The mirror is foreign, learning this language of the body, the ways it alters in the throes of a deliberate brutality. The savagery of thought, its driving influence over action, harsh impressions left on the skin as ash corrugates on the surface. I climb into discoloration, reveling in the trance of pain, constructing a regressive agony. Standing before a transcendent reflection, this language spoken in glass, the physical dialect of my targeted body in the soft hum of blood. Harm is the cruel eye of the needle that the body threads through. To wake is to witness being. Wow. That is really incredible. It's um, it's very uncompromising. It's very... Uh, Thank you. The word brutality really... Um, comes through there for me thank you very much and there's a there's an incredible use of language in there too like the soft hum of blood that's pretty cool that's pretty amazing mm. can you tell us a little bit about the writing of this poem and and uh how you put uh, it together uh, this poem is from it will be in the other flesh um but it's I don't know how clear it is, but it's obviously about self-harm. And I probably would have written it when I was 19 or 20. And basically I wanted to be able to articulate a topic like, like this uh, without compromising the poetry as far as regardless of the raw inspiration for a poem, the work of the poem always has to be the primary thing. And no matter how, I mean, if you write a diary entry that's confronting and very powerful, that's that's not poetry. There's still there's still a certain amount of respect you have to have for the craft. So I think that's that's what I like about this. It removes it removes the self and it it writes of the topic. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's, I still don't know exactly what I think of it, but I think that's what I was trying to achieve. Yeah. Right. So you've managed to move out of the way of your own writing, which is something that not many people can do. I mean, it does, it does use first person, but it's not directly, you know, an internal monologue or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I like what you say about, you know, you could just write a diary entry expressing similar things and while the subject matter would be very powerful, that wouldn't make it a poem. And uh, I know I've fallen into that trap many a time writing a poem and thinking, well, this is honest, so it must be good. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why a lot of people have problems with, you know, confessional poetry as, as a movement because they think that, you know, if I had... If I wrote about all of my problems, then maybe I'd be published and be a successful poet. But I think you write about what you know and what you've experienced. And regardless of what that is, you're writing poetry and you have to work at it. Like I know I work at my poetry very, very hard. And it's always the work of the poem that takes the priority, not the experience. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what's it been like to put the collection together? It's been, without sounding corny, a journey. Yeah. It covers it covers the years from probably 18 to 21. I'm 22 now. I've just turned 22 in June. And it's a very... It's very... I uh, can't think of the right word for it, really, but it's it delves very deeply into what I've I've lived through personally and I think I'm proud of it I'm I'm proud of it as a collection of work but obviously there's there's an aspect of being a human being in which you don't want to have experienced all of those things that you're writing about but as I said poetry is the most important thing to me and I am proud of what I've what I've been able to do with it with what I've experienced in order to write poems and put a book together yeah. Well, very much looking forward to seeing the finished products. I wanted to ask you as a final question. You've explained that poetry has been something that has it kind of clicked for you at a very young age, and since then you've focused on it entirely almost. Mm. I'm wondering, it, it sounds a lot like you're um, self-educated, for lack of a better word, around poetry, and I'm wondering what you think about... Um, the possibility of maybe, you know, going and studying it in a formal sense. Is that something that you're interested in doing in the future or? Uh, definitely not, but I, that's because I don't like to be told what to do and I'm very erratic as a person and I make things very hard for myself so I can't dedicate <laughs> to something like that. But I was at uni for a few years and I had one of the most incredible tutors in, in literature who is Elizabeth Campbell, who's one of the finest poets in this country. And that really changed things a lot for me. I remember actually I showed her a very early draft of this book years and years ago, and it was still called The Other Flesh. Um, but I don't think, I think as much as you can learn things theoretically, poetry is not the kind of thing that you can teach as far as wanting to be a poet. I think if you want to be a poet, you have to want it. And that means having that drive and that passion to read as much as you can and find out as much as you can and see what poetry can do. And I don't think you can teach that in an hour at a university, an hour a week. Yeah, no, fair enough. I think probably a lot of people would agree with you there. I don't feel like I, I articulated that very well, but <laughs> That's no, fine. I, think, I think the poetry is a, a personal journey. It's not something that once you've you've completed a course now you're going to be a poet yeah exactly i think plenty of people would agree with that sentiment for sure well it's been so good to talk to you robbie and also i just wanted to say thank you to you and nathan um for doing the australian poetry podcast oh thank you it was i was completely um besotted with it when it was when it was being recorded and I feel very much like I'm standing in your shadow doing this recording oh no not at all <laughs> thank you no worries well thanks so much for your time and yeah we look forward to seeing the book soon thank you so much Alice
Thanks for listening, everyone. You can chat to me on Twitter at Poetry Says, and you can find more episodes at PoetrySays.com.